Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Priya Parker, conflict resolution strategist and artist of gathering. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hey, Priya. Hi, Krista. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to hear your voice. Likewise, I did, likewise. Did I ask you before or did I just think this question? Are you in your living room? Or in your home, in your house? <laughs> then you could then you could uh, view it. No, I'm actually in my bedroom. Oh, um, in your bedroom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> oh, um, you know, I have too many notes today, and I haven't. I said to Zach, I've, I haven't been in this situation for a long time. I've been. I tried to be so um, disciplined in this last year, also because my. Bandwidth wasn't quite the same. But today, when I was getting ready to interview you, just all of this was occurring to me. So I have a long, long note. So we'll just see how this goes. But I'm the host, right? I know You're what the that host. means. I'm talking to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm in very, charge. very, very excited to be your guest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, everything you say about hosting applies to this particular kind of hosting, too. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you know that better than most. <laughs> um, so, Zach, how are we? Should we do this? Okay. All right. And also, did you notice how hospitable my colleague Zach is as doing this thing he does, which is technical, but I feel like he does such a beautiful job of welcoming He's and accompanying. An amazing host Isn't it? An opener. I deeply agree. Isn't it? Yeah. He, he, you, this could be a situation where people feel m- very stressed out before the interview yes. for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. And he's fixing your technology, but it's also deeper than that. He's putting you at ease. <laughs> no, like, and I've watched this, and he's he's that kind of person. But I've watched this year as we went virtual, and you know, people are you never know what's going on at the other end, right? And I've just watched this muscle in him, this this empathic compassionate hospitable thing I'm just gonna I'm seeing if he's blushing across the glass <laughs> just like deepen and deepen it's been amazing it's amazing <laughs> yeah I, it is true it was a very unique opening for a podcast <laughs> truly Good. yeah all right um all right so you know um your background I mean, this, the question—the question that I that I very often ask about the spiritual background of someone's childhood, uh, or the religious, you know, spiritual and religious are not the same thing. But the spiritual and religious background of somebody's childhood, or also, and also some, what that's getting at often is, you know, the roots of calling, right? The the background of someone's life and how that flows into who they become, and I just feel like your bio like your story which which you've written about and spoken about a lot is is just there's it's just not hard to figure out why you became <laughs> why you went into conflict resolution and uh why you care about gathering and I'm just going to summarize it briefly and then you jump in you were born in Zimbabwe of an Indian mother um, a white American father from Iowa you lived in six countries before you were six you're 
parents were kind of sounds like each other's adventure, and part of that mm-hmm. adventure was you coming into the world. And then, did you move to the states when you were six? Is that right? Yes. So you moved to the states when you were six, and your parents divorced, and you you shuttle between these two families for the rest of your childhood, one point four miles and worlds away. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> yep. Your your mother was Buddhist. That house was Buddhist, New Agey, vegetarian, theosophical, democratic. Your father's household was evangelical, conservative, meat eating, Republican. Um, so I t- want to tell you. So recently, somebody asked me. Um, no, I, I I was I was speaking about how people often ask me. Um, say to me, you must have grown up in a family of great listeners. <laughs> and I said, no, actually, I'm the other story, which is I grew up in a family where people did not listen, and I longed mm. for that. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of contradiction that I was very aware of inside the individual characters in my in my life, especially my Southern Baptist preacher grandfather, who was just full of contradictions, right? He was rules-based, and he was passionate. He was uh, judgmental and exclusionary, and he was loving. He was stern, and he was funny. And that sent me out into the world knowing in my body that people are contradictory, and I think it has allowed me to walk into every room knowing that and seeing, understanding that contradiction as a potential source of possibility and of growth together. So that's a long-winded way to get to the question I kind of want to ask you, because I feel like you, you get asked this question about your background, and you write about it so beautifully. But what do you think you knew in your body, that you have held in your body from your childhood, that you bring into every room that you walk into, including as a facilitator and host? That, that there's many ways to be. Yeah. And that there's many ways to be within ourselves, like within myself. Um, and that there's many ways to be with others and in community. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that you're asking me, what did I know in my body? Yeah. The, the ways that I would move, and I only became, you know, kind of conscious or aware of this years later, would shift based on which room or which home I was in. Hmm. And so, uh, and that was true also linguistically. And, you know, if somebody, years later, my, my husband pointed out to me, if somebody sneezed in my father's house, I would say, God bless you. And if somebody sneezed in my mother's house, I would, I would remove the God. I, I would say, bless you. <laughs> right. You were but multilingual in many. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And, and, but also, also emotionally. My, emotionally and then also physically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the ways that I would take a, um, take a seat if I was visiting New Delhi and, and it was a so- hot summer day and I was playing cards with my grandparents on their bed and and literally the formation of my legs and how I would sit with them cross-legged or slightly leaning back mm-hmm. or put with my legs uh, you can't see me but sort of slightly sort of bent into the side 
was a different embodiment than if I was sitting in a church pew with my father or standing up to, you know, praise, as we called it, um, or simply sitting around and playing Uno. Um, the, the, you know, when I, I, I spent a lot of my summers, particularly as a young person in New Delhi with my cousins. Uh, my mother is a researcher and an anthropologist, and she would often we would go to India, she would spend a little bit of time there, make sure her daughter was like, you know, settled. And then she would and then she would leave and go and do work. And I would spend six weeks to two months with my Indian families there. Mm. And so much of that was like kind of what in Hindi English is called time pass. Like, so physically getting down on a kind of a cement floor and playing carom and learning to you know, flick my middle finger and my, if you could see me now, I'm like flicking my <laughs> finger and thumb, you know, in the air. That's a completely different physical orientation than what I w might do in my father's home. And so in an embodied way, I learned from a very young age, as I think many of us do when you start paying attention to the different rooms that you're a part of, that my body could move in many ways and that there are many ways to be. Mm-hmm. And if I asked you that question, I like to ask, I mean, how would you answer the question of given all this, the multiplicity of, of influences, you know, how would you now think about what was the spiritual background of your childhood? I know what the different religious traditions were. I think that my spiritual background was incredibly mixed and it had multiple influences. And I, I was very influenced by my grandfather, my, my mother's father, and he was um, a member of the Theosophical Society. He mm -hmm. actually, um, as a young man, he didn't want to get married. He actually wanted to go and just serve in the Theosophical Society. And his mother was very upset by this. <laughs> And um, and and the and the uh, at least as the story goes, the the agreement was that they would at least find a, a woman at the time it was an arranged marriage who was from a theosophical background or family, and they they got married. And on the day he retired from government service, like fifty years later, they moved to the Theosophical Society, mm. <laughs> and. And it was this very strong, very clear charge that he always held. And growing up, I did grow up very deeply in the on my father's side in the kind of Presbyterian church. Um, and I think the moments of deep spiritual movement for me, even in church, was almost always through song and mm -hmm. collective song. Like mm -hmm. those were the mm -hmm. moments. And I can I still know all of the words. And if I still say the sequence of those words, I get full body goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. And, and and in college, I kind of pursued that, that longing through, and I joined a gospel choir. Yeah. And <laughs> little people, not, not many people know that. But on my, on my grandfather's side, the last thing I'll just say is he... When as as my two worlds kept clashing, my my basically these two different homes, his mm -hmm. mother's house and father's house, and particularly the the strain of interpretation of Christianity they grew up in and with was a denial of other truths. Right. And right. in my home with my when I could spend time with my grandfather, he would always just 
um, allow me to ask questions and to uh, trust that there were many ways of knowing. And so mm-hmm. I was deeply conflicted in many in many moments and, and often still am. But he, through, through this kind of belief that there's the, the, one of the lines that at least I learned in theosophy is there's no religion higher than truth. And he deeply encouraged me to seek any path because through the through any path, there's through any path you will get deeper in your in your understanding. His his openness and flexibility allowed me to um, to have to have non-logical ways to commune mm-hmm. with what I felt in my body when I felt that I was connected to spirit. Yeah. Also, I, what you're saying is that you were you were holding hospitali- hospitality and openness also to exclusive truth claims, right? I was. Yeah. I was. Yeah. Um so you know, I I we're going to talk a lot about your intelligence on the art of gathering. But I don't want to skip over the fact that on September 10th, 2001, you helped launch something called the Sustained Dialogue Initiative that you that you began um, in the field of conflict resolution, conflict transformation. Um, and, you know, uh, Hal, San- Hal Saunders was a mentor to you. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that influence on you, um, even as it kind of echoes in what you do today. And, and also this, this notion of sustained dialogue. Why, what, is, what did that word sustained signify in this? So I, you, you have your dates correct. <laughs> I, um, I went to the University of Virginia, and I, uh, as a freshman, as a first year, as they call it, I was very frustrated with race relations there. I, the first question people would often ask me to kind of place me was, what are you? And when I first reached, I actually didn't understand what that meant. I, I was like, a, I'm a first year, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a college student. And I learned that it was a, uh, it, it was racial, it was ethnic. And, and, mm-hmm. I, and, I, and I learned to say, I'm biracial, I'm half white American, half Indian. And it also bothered me. And it it was a source of information. Like when you are in any type of community or society, like the first questions people ask you carry a lot of data. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And and so if nothing else, I just knew that this really matters here. Mm. And I was, I started to, I was frustrated by it. I was confused by it in part because I think I grew up kind of in sometimes globally in a non-American context, sometimes in, the, in an American context, and hadn't been in such a fraught racial environment. And UVA has a very strong sense of student self-governance, which basically means if you see a problem, try to do something about it. And I began to research, and older students encouraged me to do to literally like do something about it. Don't complain. And and I began to look at what have students in the past done. I started taking history classes on the history of desegregation and integration at the University of Virginia. I started talking to student groups. And long story short, I learned about this process. Well. Somebody said to me, who started this very powerful race forum years before, he said to me, it's very powerful. We do this one day. 
it's, I think it was called Grounds for Discussion. One day experience, once a year, everyone's riled up and it's beautiful and you feel this opening and then it, and then it ends. Whatever you do should be ongoing. And I learned about this process called sustained dialogue from actually from my mother. And, and um, she, she, she learned about Hal Saunders work through, um, through somebody who just told her about it. And she said to me, you know, there's this, there's this process you may be interested in. And there's this, there's this man, he's a former diplomat, he worked in multiple administrations, he helped write the Camp David Accords. And uh, he's now he's now interested in working with young people. You should uh, and and taking this process that he'd created called sustained dialogue, and seeing if it can apply to race on college campuses. And so I um, I was lucky enough. I, I I asked him if he would meet, and he said yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I met him the summer after my freshman year, and I said, "Will you help me and my friends?" bring sustained dialogue to the University of Virginia. And he very graciously said yes. And, and he came and then, and, and his colleague Rhonda Sleem and other colleagues of theirs came down and trained us in how do you, what is a dialogue? How do you run dialogues? What does it mean to moderate a conversation? And long story short, we, we did, we sent out this letter September 10th, 2001, announcing to the community that we're starting this process called sustained dialogue. And any, any student can sign up to see if they can begin to transform race relations at UVA. Yeah. And then 9-11 happened the next day, of course. And it was just, I mean, years later, when you think about kind of the power of the promise of a gathering or the promise of a future event, all we had done was sent out a letter. It was a psychological yeah. container. And it just got deeply, deeply filled by the moment we found ourselves in. And um, and then I worked with Hal Saunders for the next five years, first as as a college student and then as an intern. And then I, after I graduated, I worked with him. And the work expanded to in the U.S. and then in the in the Arab and European and American context. And then I eventually moved to India um, to do to do the same work. I was looking on the website of the uh, Sustained Dialogue <clears throat> Initiative, and there's this phrase, um, listening deeply enough to be changed by what you learn. And, you know, it struck me that we are at a moment uh, globally, but certainly um, very intensely in this country, where that move, uh, <laughs> it feels harder you know, harder than it than it's felt in my lifetime, um, collectively. So, I mean, you work you as a conflict resolution practitioner and gatherer. You are concerned uh, as much about how people come apart as how they come together. And you know, there's this this word unity that's been floated in these last years. And and uh, I'm not as steeped in this field with the complexity that you are, but that is that's a lovely idea and such an inadequate <laughs> rallying cry i feel and not i mean it's not even just that it's not um reachable it's not i don't even know if it's desirable it's like not the right word yeah, absolutely I, right. absolutely also in part because unity implies stasis oh yeah right and and unity to what and for what and it and assumes we are all fixed right in in a moment or in time or in our own traits and you know, as I'm as I'm sitting here listening to you, I actually maybe a twelve inches from me, I have a stone on my desk, 
And it's actually a stone. Um, Hal Saunders died a few years ago. And um, at his funeral, we were each given a stone. And it says on the front, listen deeply enough. And then on the mm. back, to be changed by what you hear. Yeah. And I literally am holding it right now. I actually have to turn the rock, the stone over to be able to read the second half of the sentence. Mm. What, is that, what does that mean for you, that move? Is there something in that? Is there some, something symbolic in that? There, I think to listen, listen deeply enough to be changed by what you hear is the ability and willingness to be altered by somebody else. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have also taken, uh, and I'm a student of improv theater, and um, I've been studying under the lineage of Keith Johnstone. And Keith Johnstone, this, this language of altered, I first learned from him, which is in, in the context of, of improv, um, or as, as this kind of British lineage, they call it impro, which is this idea that all scene, all drama, all stage work is about the ability for characters to be altered by an event. When we are not altered, there's, there's nothing to watch. <laughs> right. There's nothing to learn. There's nothing to grow from. And similarly, in relationship, and whether that's in a marriage or whether that's in a family or whether that's in a company or in a house of worship, the dance between both being altered by, by what you hear or what you experience while also maintaining a sense of integrity um, and 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 being open to knowing what of yourself do does one want to hold on to versus what what can be altered by something is at the heart of all community. It's also at the heart of difference. And uh, go ahead. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I I I think something that is that is so distressing um, about the place we're in. At least in the our most strident public discourse, because I, I don't you know I don't necessarily equate what actually happens between real people all the time with what mm-hmm. happens on social media or how you know how, how political discourse is working. But it does. There's this idea out there now, you know, I, you know, much less you know this idea that how would I want to be altered by them? There's this polarization, mm-hmm. but even that to listen. Um, to that other side, that other side having many manifestations is would be an act of capitulation and compromise. I think that there are boundaries. I, you know, I think it's complicated. I think that there are systemic boundaries about uh, that. Given you know, four hundred years of a of of sort of systemic racism, for example. Yeah. I think that there's more and more nuance around what are the when setting one the is listening, yeah, setting uh-huh. the boundaries uh-huh. and setting kind of what we would call in facilitation the terms of the debate. Yeah, and you know, I actually you said this years ago, and it's a sentence I hold very dearly. You said, "We assume a monolith in the other, yeah, that we know not to be true in our own." lives, in our own families, even in ourself. Yeah. And 
I think that there when when like it's just people often ask me, how do you, you know, how do you unify to use that word you used earlier? How do you unify a group or how do you help people come together? And I often say you don't unify or connect by by trying to get them to be all the same. Yeah. You unify by complexifying the individual. Ah, that's lovely. Right? And so if I have multiple identities within me, some of which are paradoxes and haven't been totally sorted out, you know, or (laughs) half-baked myself, and you have multiple identities within you, to allow ourselves to connect across some of those paradoxes or these sub these alternate identities, softball player or ex-Baptist or stepdaughter or, you know, pilot in training. I'm making these up. Yeah. All of a sudden. Member of gospel choir. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All of a sudden it creates enough, in my experience as a facilitator, enough, it creates a certain amount of surprise, right? Mm -hmm. That we're not actually connecting on the lines that I thought we were going to be forced to connect. And it also creates a space of possibility that you referred to earlier that expands our own notion of self. And so when we allow, allow our range of possibility and choices to expand within ourselves, we also allow it to expand within the group. And I think so much of what we're battling with right now as a, as a country, as a nation, is, is, is about trying to figure out what, like, what is the non-negotiable? Like, what, is the, what are the core underlying values or belief systems yeah. that, f- frankly, I mean, I'll, I'll speak, uh, with, we're in the context of the U.S., that, that make, you know, what does it mean to be an American, and and who decides? And it's a country. It's a it's a question every nation asks and asks and grapples with and fights again. It's a it's all but all the way down to what does it mean to be a Parker or what does it mean to be a Narayan or what does it mean to be a Tippet? Yeah. Right. This question is at the epicenter of almost all group life, and healthy groups allow space to, for contestation, and then and and every generation kind of needs to refresh that question. And unhealthy groups either avoid it and drift apart or annihilate one another. And so I feel like what where 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 you've walked us is is really so when we when you talk about gathering and and also gathering is also another way to talk about how we interact in groups, right? Um, either temporary groups or or sustaining groups. Um, so we're we're talking about something so much bigger and deeper, or you are talking about something so much bigger and deeper um, than just people being in the same space, whether that's a virtual space or a physical space. I just want to read, like you know, the very first paragraph of of your book, um, "The Art of Gathering." Um, why do we gather? We gather to solve problems we can't solve on our own. We gather to celebrate, to mourn, and to mark transitions. We gather to make decisions. We gather because we need one another. We gather to show strength. We gather to honor and acknowledge. We gather to build companies and schools and neighborhoods. We gather to welcome, and we gather to say goodbye. In this last period, this last 18 months or so, in this in this post 2020, 2020 and post 2020 world, we've also we've also made attempts to do 
as much of those things that we we've done in person, remote, working, meeting, living, loving, solving problems. You know, one thing I want to ask you, and and now fitfully and not at the same pace by any stretch of the imagination in different parts of the world and even in different parts of our country and communities. Um, we're asking what we've learned and, and, and how we continue to be group and gather as we move forward. But, you know, I kind of want to ask you, as we go into what you know, the intelligence you bring to these questions, you know, it seems to me that there were, there were, there's a lot of form that changed, but there's, there's also a lot of principle and kind of essential truths um, that didn't, didn't change at all. I mean, you've pointed out like— That were revealed. Right, right. That were revealed. I mean, you always said meetings were broken before the pandemic, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I just to set the table a little bit, in part because when we have words that we kind of use all the time— we think we know what they mean or we're assuming we're using them in the same way. Yeah. So I define a gathering as any time three or more people come together for a purpose with a beginning, middle, and end. Mm. So three or more people. I'm really interested, as you've already, as you've pointed out, in group life. Yeah. The principles of this work apply in in kind of couples or one-on-one, but it's really about the 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 unique and beautiful creature of the group. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it's a specific event in time. It begins, it, it there's a middle, and there's an end. And part of that is a distinction I try to make between gathering and group or gathering and community, which is gatherings can, good gatherings, can create a sense of community, and communities have gatherings. But I'm, yeah. I'm pulling those two things apart. And I do that in part because we are gathering all the time before yeah. the pandemic. And now it's changed form. But all day long, morning, noon and light, we're with other people solving problems or in the classroom or in the in our companies with our neighbors. And what I have seen, you know, I wrote The Art of Gathering in 2018. The paperback came out uh, like April 2020. I mean, in the in the middle of a pandemic when gathering yeah. was illegal. And, right. and <laughs> to put a fine point on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is awkward. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what I have seen like over and over and over again is before the pandemic, when I would go out and speak and, you know, I'm still, my day job is still a group conflict resolution facilitator. When I would talk about the importance of gathering, I, I had to make the argument for it, right? I had to set up the argument. I had to right. help people see they're, we're doing this all the time. It's affecting our life. Often we're doing it badly. The ways that we're, we're blessing our children and marrying our people no longer, you know, we're, we need new rituals because the needs of our current moment don't match the ways that we used to do these things. But I had to, I had to make the argument for it. And what has fundamentally shifted is we now all see gatherings. Right. Right. In part because it was banned, right? We still yeah. see gatherings. Can we can we can I have this wedding? Can I not? Can we host this fundraiser? Can we not? The word gathering over the course of two weeks from, you know, late February to mid March went from something I could have a literally have a Google alert about to yes. something that just was in every headline around the world. Yeah, that's amazing. Right. I mean I hadn't thought about that. It's also just so so obvious and elemental that as you have as you had said and written about, we 
we had we we had and have come to do so many gatherings um, on autopilot, uh, just with knowing like a birthday, a meeting, a book club, without considering the why. But we kind of knew this how. Um, but but what happened in the pandemic is we had to remake the how. We had to remake the how, and so did it point us then back to the why as well? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. if you think you if you think about something as simple as a birthday, right, mm-hmm. a birthday party, and pre-pandemic, in any context of our gatherings, I would argue that a lot of the infrastructure, doorways, food. Hallways bumping into other right, people. Right. We're subsidizing. They were distracting from the lack of meaning. Hmm. They were distracting from the autopilot nature. They were distracting from the fact that we were focusing so much on the logistics and the cake and the candles and the pointy hats that we didn't pause to ask, what does this person actually need or want or how should we spend time to who they are at this age at 17 or at 37 or at 87? Yeah. And What happened, again, just super simply, pandemic hits, all of a sudden, perhaps it's not your own birthday, but perhaps you have to, you're planning somebody's, somebody else's birthday, a a grandparent's 80th or a child's fifth birthday. And you, you know, maybe go on to Zoom if you're lucky enough to even at that point know how to, you know, how to do that and have a good Wi-Fi connection. Yeah. And... Then when you have 12 faces and boxes and after everyone kind of talks awkwardly and maybe sings happy birthday, what do you do with the other 47 minutes? Right. You can't you can't. So so what what ended up and this is true in office places and and so many other contexts where when you we had to begin to actually think about what creates psychological togetherness. What are the questions we're asking? How do we structure time so that people are moved by the interaction between one another? Why are we doing this? Who should be there? Mm -hmm. How important do I want to work to get somebody to be able to learn how to log into something? I mean, all of these questions that previously, you know, maybe facilitators and sociologists obsessed over, but most of us didn't ask because the, the, the grooves had been formed. And so all of a sudden, when we had this massive interruption of how we love and live and marry and wed and fight, we're interrupted. We had to pause and say and get to ask and scratch our heads. It's like, well, how do we do this now? And what are the ways that have never been working? And who are my people? And how do we spend our time? You know, I... um even when you talk about how a gathering has a beginning, a middle, and an end, um, and it, you know that kind of takes me back to your comment a little while ago about Im- improvisational theater, right? I mean, what you're talking about is is creating a narrative arc and drama to an experience, um, and something as you say you were already writing about and thinking about is how we were letting these these rote forms stand in for beginnings, middle, and endings. Um, I mean, one of the things you point out, too, is that knowing the category of a gathering is not the same as knowing the purpose, um, mm-hmm. right? Which And so when we had to do meetings, again, just as you said, in this whole new way, um, and also, you know, for me, one of the early things... Do you remember how we all were? I mean, I, I think this is still true, but maybe we've gotten used to it. We were so exhausted by all the Zoom meetings mm-hmm. in the beginning. And for me, this really basic realization was 
understanding, or at least this is the way I understood it, how that we physically get energy body to body when we're in a room. That like there's drama, right? Just in the bo- the proximity of bodies, and and sometimes it's it's a good meeting or a bad meeting, but you're right. There's 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 something being there's energy flowing around, and so without that physical energy in Zoom, I mean that also did create this. We we had to think about that about this about the beginning, the middle, and end, the drama, and the as you say, the purpose. Say a little bit more about about what that means for you. Um, and you've, you, you have this chart in your book, and you're talking, you know, your, your desired purpose is specific, unique, and disputable. <laughs> so, <laughs> so spell that out, what that means. Why that's so we, good. Yeah, so we, we often confuse category with purpose, yeah. meaning, like, as simple as, let's have a pool party, right? Or let's have a bagel breakfast at the synagogue or at the mosque. And then we start saying, okay, who's going to order the bagels? Or, okay, so who are we going to, do we invite this neighbor? Who are we going to invite that neighbor? And once we have a category in our head, right, there's a board meeting. Okay, we need (laughs) post-its. Or there's a, we start, we, we, we skip defining the purpose because we think it's shared and obvious. Uh And actually, many of our forms are either outdated or outmoded, or they're activities, right? So something as simple as a pool party, well, why are you having this pool party? And I I will ask this for anything, and people just look at me like I'm, you know, nuts. It's like, uh, you know, to have fun. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, to get wet. I don't know, to swim. And what do you say? What do you say to the pool party? And I say, okay, so then... But but there's a lot of ways to have fun. Like why? What what specifically? Like what inside you? What is the need? Like why are you? Ha- why do you want to have fun with? And, and again, people look at me like I'm insane. Like because <laughs> I'm human, and and I and I keep on asking in part because when we know the purpose, or to say it in a different way, when we know the need underneath why we're gathering people, we can then make decisions about who to gather and how to kind of run it. So if I'm asking a neighbor, okay, why do you want to have a pool party? And I'm making this up. And they say, you know, to have fun. Well, well, underneath that, well, who are you going to invite? And they're like, well, I don't really know if I should invite the friends we always see or if we should invite the new neighbors or we should invite everybody. That's when it starts getting interesting. And then you say, well, what is it at the core underneath? What is it that you want for your family? And, and you keep on asking, but why, but why, but why? And people look at you, you know, like you're very annoying, which you probably, which they think I am. <laughs> and, and, and eventually someone will say something like, because I want to grow up in the kind of place where my children know their neighbors mm. and feel safe. Mm. And there's a lot of information in yeah. there. And it, and it also allows us to connect to something that's, you know, more deeply meaningful to us, but it's also super practical. Okay, if you want your children to feel safe and have an expansive sense of neighbor, like we should be inviting the people that we most want to get to know. We should be expanding, right? It's a compass. And when we don't, or a staff meeting or even a birthday party, what is the need this year in my life that I want to mark? And who might be the appropriate people this year to help me mark it? And it's interesting also for the guests, too. I mean, there's some profound notion in having 
doing the same thing year after year, there's a sense of ritual and belonging and meaning. And if that's working for you, do that. But when, it, when, when we feel as if we're in a rut or it's not totally clear, you know, beyond focusing on the food and the, and the um, you know, and the, and the whatever, the glasses, why am I doing this? Allowing us to find a specific need allows you to break open your form of what you might actually do for that gathering. So if you decide that for this year the thing I most need is a sense of adventure, right, or a sense of risk after having everything so controlled and contained, maybe the birthday par- party, I'm saying party in quotes, is a 5 a.m. visit to the fishing docks and watch with three people, the fishermen and fisher people and fisherwomen, pulling their nets in. Mm. And and we're in this moment, kind of with a capital M, right? Which which that the kind of moment that can last for an instant or a century, where <laughs> the world has shifted on its axis and continues to shift on its axis. We we are faced with all of these existential um, challenges, awakenings, uh, and crises, um, and so you know. And we're at this moment also, because of the pandemic, of, you know, you've used the phrase regathering, right? It's this moment of like, <laughs> we can get together again. This is not necessarily, there's a simple way to say that. And there's a there's a com- complexity that you give the notion. But um, so so what I wanted to say is like, I've, I recently attended something um a kind of traditional gathering which has been really meaningful in many ways across many years. And the impulse was, now we can do it again. Mm. And the same template was there of years past, and it, and it worked. And what was so glaring to me is that that template did not allow for the acknowledgement in our midst that the world has changed, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. <laughs> and, and, you know, to the point of your work. so And that we have changed. And we have changed. Right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the sense that, you know, so we often think of hosting as like this, uh, this like elevated, far from the far from the people, even if they're your people, this this kind of mm-hmm. thing we do on the side away, slightly worried, slightly scared, right? Whether no one will show up or will they like it? And and so it's almost yeah. like the 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 it's almost like if you're thinking about it, this physical stance, I see people in this moment of deep upheaval where bar mitzvahs keep getting canceled and weddings keep getting canceled and book fairs keep getting canceled and rescheduled and put into hybrid and then into virtual and then into this. And when we don't actually pause and first just kind of throw our hands up in exasperation and also belly laugh, like, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> what a mess! And like, yeah. and, and 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 rather than pretending it's not a mess and being far from the community or people, whoever those people are, like, community is is actually opening up and saying like, what a mess, mm-hmm. and welcome mm-hmm. to this mess, mm-hmm. and I want to be in this mess with you, yeah. And 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 to me, having a, a, the similar ritual, the similar form as from the before times, unless it's deeply conscious and everybody wants to do it in part because you can, but but for most people, that's not the case. It's it's 
I mean, I'm going to use this word and maybe too much. It's almost cruel. Hmm. It's like it's it's invisibilizing an entire transformation that we each have been through individually. Yeah, and, and what everybody's been through. You're right. Like totally. I think even if you just would like to do it the way it was done before, because it would feel like a return to something good, we're mm-hmm. not the same people, as you said. We're we're not. We've all been through so much, and many, and, right? Ab- absolutely. And and this is. And by the way, this is true pre-pandemic. It, it, mm. This is just true about life. Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's a. I, I, right. in, the in any given year. Yeah. In any given year. In any yeah. given moment. I mean. Yeah. There's a phrase uh, when I when I went to research the art of gathering, I I spent time with and I interviewed over a hundred different people from all walks of life, who other people created with uh, credited with creating transformative, moving group experiences. And one of the people I spent time with was a was a tea master, a tea ceremony master in, mm. in Kyoto, and she said she she was trying to describe you know this is a ritual, the tea ceremony that. That for decades and decades and decades, she and many in her lineage are are trying to perfect the precision of a ritual over and over and over again. To, to almost, there's no such thing as perfection, but to, to as precise as possible. And she said to me, you know, part of part of the joy of precision is when I start doing the same motions again and again and again, I can more I can more clearly see the change mm. Mm. and and there's a Japanese phrase and I, I I forgive my pronounce my pronunciation I think it's ichigo ichi and it basically and she said this phrase to me and she said it's it's the idea that when we if you stick your foot in the in a river and two different times you know one minute and you take your foot out and then another moment five minutes later it's not the same river yeah. But it's also not the same foot. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, because we've changed. Yes. And and the pandemic is like that on steroids, right? I mean, we've yeah. also had this collective experience together where we have this common context to share. And and and, and you know, you used the you use language at the beginning of this question about regathering. A very simple like what we're talking about here, there's the philosophical approach, but there's a very practical approach which is how do we use language in our invitations in this moment? And doing something as simply as a regathering versus a gathering or yeah. the, you know, parentheses, not a wedding, wedding reception, right? <laughs> or the belated mitzvah, right? It's, it's the wink. It's the saying like, gosh, this is such a mess and won't you come in? Yeah. And, and just the use of language in itself in the invitation acknowledges this shared deep presence the openness and 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 acknowledgement of the moments that we are all in and an invitation to come into it together and to see it and not avoid it and be intentional in a way by force in a way that we weren't um necessarily intentional before and and what you you what you just what you just said also is an expression of some just some elemental things that you know about um what makes for a meaningful group experience and i think it's true in a physical experience or in a virtual experience and and you know a couple of these things are the importance of the host um and also of where is it you said of 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 preparation of how much of um, the quality of a gathering is dependent on what happens before 
anybody walks through the door or any word is spoken. Absolutely. You know, we tend, I had a mentor, Rhonda Sleem. She's an incredible facilitator. And she would say to me, 90% of what happens in the room, and she was talking about conflict dialogue rooms, 90% of what happens in the room happens because of what we've done before. Like as facilitators, mm-hmm. the paths that we prepped, what the invitation said, who we chose, how we decide, the narrative, the story we're telling about why people are coming. Um, and and that's true whether it's a you know complicated global dialogue or whether it's a four-year-old's birthday party, which is we think we're hosting from the moment of entry, like once the guest right. comes into the room or the Zoom, but we're actually hosting from this moment, what I call the moment of discovery, the moment the guest receives this invitation, receives this promise of this future event or future happening. And, and that invitation is an opportunity to tell a story, to, tell, to create this temporary alternative world, to create this, this whatever it is, this rave, this wedding, this you know, this LARP, this whatever it is that you're creating. And in part, it goes back to our earlier conversation, which is because we have multiple selves, like Mm. no guest is Mm. a monolith. Mm -hmm. And so I can decide to show up in so many different ways based on what I understand this, this social contract to be what I'm being asked to sign up for. And so do I am I coming with my serious side or my silly side? Am I coming with my marching band side or my gospel side? Am I coming with my facilitator side or my biracial side? Mm-hmm. And part of part of the beauty of creating these these psychological agreements to show up in a certain way and to choose to do that, that is all in the pathways to the language and the invitation that you create before anyone arrives in the room. So people often say to me, like, how do you get people to do what you just want them to do? <laughs> and, and the, I mean, the kind of the, the, the secret is you don't do it in the room. I mean, right, I, right. I mean, every every gathering is an is an agreement at some level, mm. and and even a, even if you think of something as, you know, like a a, a hootenanny or a a dinner party, or all of these words contain agreements, a, 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 contain norms, contain a hootenanny. You know, whether you know that word or not, is like bring your bring your. Uh, instrument and get ready to jam, right? Or a barn yeah. raising. That means actually come and help us. A a dinner party, like bring a bottle of wine and be relatively interesting. You know, what, what, <laughs> but, <laughs> whatever you know, the... Yeah. And what, what you're doing is naming things that yes. that we don't name and, and yes. therefore are not, and, uh, you know, are, have have not been intentional about. And again, this, this break from normality has forced this intentionality. I mean, just in that list you said also of of how people prepare it you know the the way the invitation is extended also determines whether people kind of come defended or feeling welcomed Absolutely. right and that's before any words are spoken um gathering talk, is an act of meaning making and talk about which is implicit in everything you're saying your understanding of the importance of the host and of the generous the host this this quality of generous authority, and and I'm also curious. I I think that that language of authority uh, is probably a little bit more controversial than it was when you far, first started speaking about it. But what? <laughs> how do you mean like that? That hosting? You say hosting is not democratic, just like design is not democratic. But um, yeah, what is that? 
So any uh, gathering is a political act. Any gathering, and even a even a six year old birthday party. Uh, Absolutely, particularly a six year old birthday party. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Who do we invite? Do we invite the entire class? Do we invite these people? We don't even. They invited yeah. us. Do we have to have the same? Cost of presence? Do we? Is there, are there assumptions into mm. you know where we do it? Are we actually going to rent out that that gym, or can we actually do it in the backyard? And when I say political, I mean political with a small p. It's a it's an act of power negotiation. And any time we are bringing together three or more people, and this is also true in 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 two people, power dynamics exist in every relationship and in every group, and that's not a bad thing. And to to pretend that that's not the case is well, actually, right. It's another reality that we just don't always name. And and that and that by not naming it, you're yeah. actually yeah. hurting yourself and the guests. So, yeah. like, why are we coming together? What is and some of the and it can be done in a deeply fun way, but but when you don't actually so generous authority is using your power as a host for the good of the group mm. to achieve its purpose. Right. And I think of generous authority as practicing the kind of role of the host as practicing three things. One is to connect your guests to each other and to the purpose. Why are we here? And it can be really fun. Like I, you know, we are so this is an example from a couple of years ago. A friend, a friend invited uh, my my partner and I to a Passover Seder. And um, I'm not Jewish. It was our first Seder. We walk in and it's a living room full of people. This is pre-pandemic, and I didn't know. I, I didn't know the context. I didn't know if we were the only people who, mm. you know, weren't didn't know, you know, didn't know what to do, or if we were. I had no context. I mean, and and it was full of joy and you know, people on the carpet and pillows and chairs and musicians. And then at some point, the host dung her glass and she said, "Welcome. We are so happy to have you here." For some of you, this is your 25th. This is our 25th <laughs> Seder together. And for others of you, this isn't only your first Seder with us. It's your first Seder ever. And we are so happy you are here. You refresh us. You mm. help us see. Mm. And from a personal note, I also, this is the first Seder that I've ever had without my mother. Mm. And she passed away last year. And I'm feeling that. And I'm so happy to be with you. Let us begin. No. Right? 30 seconds. Yeah. One minute. She's transformed the room. She's protected us. You all belong here, whether you're oldies or newbies. She's connected us. This is the, you know, these are who else is here. And everybody adds value. And she's temporarily equalized us. In 45 seconds? Yeah. And what allows us to, when a host uses their power to protect, connect, and equalize the guests. And in very simple ways, it allows everyone to actually then engage and feel enough so that they can be then whatever they need to be for that, for that moment, for that event. And, you know, that, that also points out another kind of quality that you call out of, of meaningful gatherings, and that is always the power of the opening, of the beginning. And that it's like what you said somewhere. It's 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 not about it's not the thing that that often gets so um, 
done so routinely and, and thoughtlessly, and it feels like it feels like the right thing to do is kind of logistics. But mm-hmm. you but you talk about creating a threshold, and you see mm-hmm. that that's what that story you just told us. You all walked into a different place together. We then. walked into a different place, and mm-hmm. she changed the place. And yeah. thresholds again. This is very practical stuff. This is very democratic stuff. Any of us can do this. A threshold can be a sign. Like I've been walking around. I, I've for years I've loved to see you know often businesses or small businesses or restaurants have like those chalkboard signs outside of restaurants or outside of their you know their place and maybe they're advertising a sale, but the but but that is a threshold. What do you put on mm-hmm. your sign? I you know there's a there's a there's a restaurant in Brooklyn that that at least pre-pandemic it said something like um, walk in if you want to get served you need to walk in dancing <laughs> right <laughs> right I, I saw yeah. a bar recently outside and it said um, keep an if you don't keep an eye on your children it was an open space a huge bar huge um, kind of outdoor pavilion fountains everywhere like a kind of a children's paradise and it was a bar and the sign just simply said something like um, if you don't keep an eye on your children, we're going to feed them Red Bull and teach them to swear. Mm. Right? <laughs> yeah. And like, that's generous authority. It's funny, right? right? It's yeah. saying they are welcome here. They're yeah. actually not saying keep them out. Right. And they're saying like, keep them like, they're still yours, <laughs> yeah. right? They're still yours. And so when thresholds, it's like, we, particularly in modern society, we all are different from each other. We all have many ways of being. And so we can't assume, right? Traditional societies, there's a way to walk into a door. There's a code of whether you take your shoes off or not. There's a code as to whether or not you walk to an altar or you take off your coat or you hang up your umbrella. We all are different from each other. And one of the most radical experiments, particularly in this society, is to see how can we meaningfully connect without all having to be the same. And you do that through signage. I mean, and mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm like, this is not rocket science. You do it through expl- whether it's on a Zoom, you know, opening for the first five percent and welcoming people, or having a sign, having a little, um, you know, a visual virtual sign that says, "We're so happy you're here." You know, playing playing a yeah. song for yeah. two minutes. Tell us, tell us what you tell us. Um, what's the best thing that you did this weekend? Put into the chat. That itself, it creates a norm that people should be using the chat. It creates a norm of participation. It allows us to have multiple selves. It creates a sense of risk and depth of what people decide to share and whether they share something, you know, the depth of what they want to share. All of these elements in the first 5% of an experience is tends to set the pathways and the norms of how we ch- how we behave for the rest of it. Right. And we can create and then challenge what the norms are in a place in order to help the group do its work. And its work might be to bless a union, right? I, yeah. It's work. I've been to different weddings on Zoom and some of them, the, the Zoom chat is like, it's like the peanut gallery. I mean, it's funny and like people and they don't people don't all know each other, but there's been a priming at the beginning that like this is something we're doing mm-hmm. here. We can tease about the shoes or we can talk about the, you know, the the song coming through and other Zoom weddings where it's like pin drop silence. 
And it's not because one group is fun and the other group is a bunch of bores. <laughs> it, it's because of the ways that we created signals in the first five percent of what it of that it's that like not just that it's safe to connect here, but some signaling as to What's how how mm-hmm. how can you connect? What is allowed here? What is invited here? What is celebrated here? So that we can actually be successful guests. Now, when I saw that language that you used about a threshold, I thought of this line of John O'Donohue, the late poet and theologian and philosopher. He, 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 I mean, he, talked, he spoke about thresholds, all, that there's so many thresholds all through life, and, and that the work and that the challenge and, and an invitation to, is to cross our thresh, thresholds worthily. Mm. Uh, which seemed like another, another, other words for talking about uh, an art of gathering. Completely, mm-hmm. and and I love like the sense of the worthy, like yeah, what, what gathering is a sacred act, right? Yeah. You're acting, you're asking people to spend their time with you in a specific way. And what it's like, it's this like, it is an art, it's an art and it's once and it's a way to actually ask like, what is worthy of our time yeah. and, and joy, mm-hmm. right? Is worthy mm-hmm. of our time. Humor mm-hmm. release is worthy of our time. Conflict, productive conflict is worthy of our time. And how do we create the conditions and the setup so that people are knowing, are saying a true yes, that they also agree that this is a worthy way to spend their time. And and that idea of thresholds, you know, I think this is true right now in, in our workplaces. I recently wrote a piece where I was talking about where where I was talking about reentry at work. Yes, actually, and, I read. Uh, yeah, I, actually, that's where I wanted to go next. I wanted to ask you about that because this is another dimension. So, yes, keep going. So, so I, you know, I I start the piece talking about Apple. You know, decide, trying to figure out, and this is in June, mm-hmm. whether or not to go back, you know, physically go back to the offices. And Tim Cook issued a, you know, a, a letter yep. that basically said, and I was, I was very interested in this letter. It said, there are certain, we've, we've learned what we can do in the pandemic. There's, in ways, there's, I'm not, I'm, this is not verbatim, that have surprised us. And yet, we also understand that there's certain things that we just want to do together. And interestingly, he doesn't actually name what that is. It's like the sense, you know, you know it when you see it kind of thing. <laughs> And, and, and that, and therefore we're going to, everyone's going to come back to work three days a week. Two days later, there's an open letter from 80 employees basically saying, I don't think y'all are seeing what we're seeing. I don't think like y'all are, are experiencing or, or, or have learned or at all what the employees are feeling. And I love this example in part because like in this moment, we are all Apple now. Like we are grappling with how should we meet? And who decides? And and I think, do you want to go back to work is the wrong question. And and I write it, was, it was in the New York Times for this for this very specific piece. I wanted I thought a lot about like, OK, if that's the wrong question, what are the right questions as a facilitator? If I had time with these different groups, what should we be asking and exploring together? And it's it's not should we be going back to work? It's what have you longed for? Right during the pandemic, that you couldn't do with colleagues—that's yeah. data. What, like, when did you just want to like push through the screen and get like so annoyed that like you know you almost feel like you can't do the thing you want to do because of the limitations of the technology? Yeah. That's data. Just ask people. Yeah. This is true for worship too. This is true for yeah. any type. What did you want to? What are you happy to discard? Right. What like, did you what not did you, miss? What did you not miss exactly? <laughs> right. yeah. um, you know, you can whisper that anonymously. Like, what should we not bring back? 
then third, what did we invent Mm -hmm. during this pandemic? What did we, you know, digital hot tub parties where people were in their own (laughs) bathtubs? I mean, I keep saying this example over and over again because it's Mm mind-blowing. It breaks this assumption of what can we actually meaningfully do when we're not physically in the same room. Um, And then finally, what do we want to invent now? And, And to quote, you know, I love this idea of worthily, like, how do yeah. we actually take this threshold moment and be worthy of it? Yes. Um, I think those questions are just so practically helpful for for any workplace in moving forward in this world ahead. You know, something I want to ask you about, too, is I'm really curious. I, I haven't – maybe you've been out there speaking about this. I haven't seen it – is um, and this from your conflict resolution side certainly is the fact that um, is is DEI right diversity equity inclusion inclusion which in this same tumultuous period where nothing was working the way it used to and we were inventing forms for better or worse um, this particular crucial. Uh, existential, potentially life-giving, transformative uh, set of conversations and reckonings and reimagining and restructuring um, around race. Also, I think, first of all, it's, you know, started to be done in in workplaces, and in particular in workplaces, and, and, you know, done well, done badly, sometimes taken up... um, by force, in a sense, or a sense that one had to do it, which is probably not the right way to start a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very young field. Um, I'm just curious, and also it seems to me, oh, God, so fraught that it is our workplaces in which we're picking this up and asking people to, uh, especially people of color, to come into those conversations which are so intimate and um anyway i'm just curious how you're watching that and how you see that could better unfold than i think it's unfolding right now i'm watching it with deep and sustained interest uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and curiosity mm-hmm. and I think, first of all, um, that this is a set of conversations, uh, and and it's not a conversation, it's conversations that, in my experience, both as a facilitator and also as somebody who, who, you know, gets a lot of examples um, about what people are going through, every community that I know of is grappling with the question about what are we for? Who are we for? What have we not seen until now, in part because of the power structures, both within our organizations as well as in our societies, served to allow us to not see it? And how do we, I wouldn't even say get out of this mess, how do we face the systems, the organizations, the teams that we've built in this moment that are revealing themselves to be incredibly 
broken or at least incredibly hurt. And I think that the 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 like in almost any kind of massive um, set of conversations or questions, to always begin in the specific and to begin to be I'm curious about specific communities, specific places, specific organizations, and how it's manifest manifesting in their context. So I'll give I'll give an example. Um, and this isn't so much a reckoning, but I think there's some information in it. I, I recently, um, there's a there's a woman that um, that wrote me, and I have permission to share this, this example. And um, she they it's a it's they run a nonprofit that's basically a um, on a service based model. So it's volunteer, it's kind of comprised of volunteers, and it's a service based model, meaning volunteers go and I'll change the details, you know, teach, teach kids in a school. And, um, and the pandemic hits, and they have to move fully virtually, like they're into, as a nonprofit, as a, as an agency, they have to move fully virtually into figuring out how do they still serve their, um, their people, their communities, virtually. And then 16, and they start doing that, they start having virtual sessions, they start, and then 16 months later, they come out and they realize they now have these kind of two tracks, the people who want to go back in person and the people who actually deeply benefit from having a virtual a virtual way to serve people. And they've realized, in part because of all that has happened in the pandemic, in part because of Black Lives Matter, it, that 99% of their volunteers before the pandemic were white women between 60 and 80 years mm. old. Mm. And they've realized that through opening up virtually and opening up different forms of access, their volunteer force has become younger, browner, you know, more non-binary men, women. Amazing. Right? And, yeah. and, and yet then they have this moment that may not feel like a reckoning to the outside, but they have this then this, these kind of these two tracks. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, they have to kind of decide, like, who are we now? What are we? Who are we for? What is the nature of our work? What is service? Who should be serving? Like these are deep questions where there's not an answer to it, but they're asking the questions. Yeah. And who you center in those conversations and what it actually means to center those voices, who asks the questions, who's invited to speak first. There's now modalities I know of theater groups where they're, these are all based on agreements, but in, in putting on plays, they... Um, have a practice where the language that I've recently heard used is where members of the global majority speak first. Mm. And until all of the members of the global majority have spoken in that group, the agreements that have been set, only then do the white folks start to speak. Again, these are these are agreements there. That is a that is a very specific agreement in a very specific place. And I think the places then the communities and the organizations that are doing this well are grappling, and they're finding out, they're asking fundamental questions. What are we? Who are we? And how do we have these conversations with the agreement of our people while centering the people who have had historically the least amount of power? And the last thing I'll just say is I'm very in- inspired by by many people, but particularly over the past year around these questions by the work of Alicia Walters. And she is a black practitioner. She's biracial. She's based in Oakland. And she is a facilitator and an artist. And she 
ran an experiment before the pandemic that and and then and then continued it at certain moments during the pandemic called the Black Thought Wall. Hmm. And she runs this experiment where there's a huge she builds this huge wall. It's like literally a black wall, 10 feet by 20 feet. And as it was described to me pre-pandemic, she on the top of the wall it says something like this wall is for black thought and black thought is sacred. And then there's questions, depending on the community on the wall, that black people can pick up a piece of chalk and answer their questions. What does it mean to be free? What is it, you know, what is your vision for black joy? What is your vision for black freedom? And this is where I think it's what her work is just fascinating and brilliant. It's a multiracial space. Everybody is invited in. And she gives a role on the chalkboard. She has facilitators who are ready and primed, and they're non-black facilitators. They may be people of color, they may be white. Facilitators who are ready and primed. And on the wall it says, everyone else, your role is to witness, honor, and protect. Hmm. And if somebody comes up and a white woman or man or person starts, picks up the chalk and is, you know, sort of obliviously still writing, the facilitators are trained to physically and and consciously kind of interrupt the pattern, pause, ask them if they've seen the wall. But but the thing is, is it's not shame-based. They're not saying leave. They're not saying there's no role for you. They're actually saying you actually have power. And in this space, the perfect, uh, the purpose of this moment, of this wall, is to center black thought. And we actually desperately need you to witness honor and protect. Mm. You know, I I find that word witness really surfacing. It's it's becoming a part of of public vocabulary. Um and I I found I read it in you also and just wrote this down. You you were talking about some project or another, but it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, th- here's what you described throughout the day, through that throughout the day I was building their muscle as a group to collectively witness one another. And mm. and that witnessing in that particular instance um involved engaging in good controversy or you mm-hmm. you like what is the language you use generative conflict. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Say, I, I guess, um, yeah, what, how would you, what would you offer in this time um, where even, where we do have this collective fracture? Um, and sometimes, uh, I mean, maybe, Maybe more anecdotally than is true, but the fault lines are in our families. Mm-hmm. Um, what are just some? What is? I, I'm not even going to say pointers. I'm going to say some orientation you would give about how to start witnessing one another, even in these very fraught places, and how do you start to pick up conflict as generative or transform conflict into something generative. I mean, the first thing, and this is just always true, which is to pause, and I know I sound like a broken record, but it's to pause and ask, to check in with yourself, Mm -hmm. and then to check in with whatever the line is of that community. It's like, what is the need here? Right? What is the purpose here? What is the need at this moment for me? And what is the need, as I can ascertain it as deeply as I can see, for this community, whatever, however I'm defining that community? And sometimes... 
you know, I we talked earlier about kind of lineages and you coming from a family of of non-listeners. <laughs> yeah. That's something you've deeply con- you know come to come to listen. I come from a line of ostriches. Right? Who stick <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> who stick their head in the sand and and you know avoid conflict at all cost. And you know when my parents my parents divorced, like everyone was shocked because they never fought. And, and so often, just to pause and to ask, like, what is the need in this relationship in this moment, right? Coming back to specificity. And for, in some contexts, the need when things are so tense and so conflictual is actually joy and reminding mm, each right. other why you love each other. That we can take you know, pleasure in each other, we whether we agree or not. To, yeah. to, to, to yeah. water the field, right? Mm-hmm. To water the bed so that we can actually face and turn to each other. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I have a monthly newsletter yeah. that in which I share an example of like one specific moment, somebody you know, going through a gathering. And most recently, it was from a woman who's part of a small church in North Carolina. And she described her... She, when I asked, you know, what's happening, and she said, we've just, it's, we're a church community, and we've just done a lot of missing of each other. We've missed mm. each other physically during the pandemic, but also it's revealed all of these deep political tensions that we we hadn't faced before, and we're just missing each other. Just a lot of, it's just hard. It's tough. And long story short, this was in the summer, and she just kind of began to locate, like, what's the need? What's the need? What's the need? And she realized, and she belongs to the group, she said, the need in this moment is joy and to remember that we want to be a community, to remember that we can have fun together. And so they threw a church parking lot party. <laughs> yeah. And they and she convinced her, like, the church, you know, budget committee to, to rent a dunk tank, and she, this is like going back to purpose, she understood and she communicated our deepest need in this moment is remembering joy and surprise mm-hmm. and, and seeing each other and maybe a little bit of dunking each other as well and the power of spectacle. And it wasn't to then avoid and pretend and put everything under the rug. It was actually to feed the engine so that we have the sustainability, we have the longing, we have the desire to then also want to face one another. And so, so much, so my deepest principle is like, look at this moment, because the need may change. What is the need right now? And, and then to, to design the agreements around it, to, to convince, to rally, um, to find your allies, to, to convince what is a way in which we might address that need that may not look the way we used to address these needs. And I think sometimes people bristle against, you know, rules or agreements or, and, and, and there's so many different ways to create kind of fun pop-up rules. And it can even simply be like language or words we won't use or right. like no eye rolling. Like no eye rolling is like <laughs> right. it's, it, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's, it's also naming a, a deep sense that we sometimes feel. And it's also this very simple way to say we got to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. And I also I, I what I love about that story is. I do think that most of us really long to figure it out, right? Yeah. And what we what what, get, what gets reported and what gets amplified is is just the stalemate. And I, I just don't think most of us want to stay in stalemate. Um, 
Even if we or, don't. Yeah, or, or exit it or just sort of, right. it's like it's stuck. It's stuck yeah. energy. And it's not just yeah. stuck within the relationship. It's stuck within the self, the body. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I recently read this wonderful book called Fault Lines by Carl Pilimer. I think it, I, you know, unluckily for him, I think it came out like March 2020. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel so sorry for authors. Uh, that was yes. their pub date. And it's a gorgeous book. And he looks at, he, con- he and his team conduct the largest, I believe, ever study of, um, of estrangement. Mm. And, and, and he looks and he locates estrangement as between two people. And I think they define it as uh, estrangement as you haven't spoken to somebody in over intentionally in over a year it's not you haven't lost touch but Mm. like there hasn't been any contact and um and it bothers you i mean it's something like that and he it's a beautiful book because he starts to look at why do what is the difference between those who are able to reunite is not the word he used but to move beyond their estrangement versus those who don't and one of the things that he says is they let go of having to have the same story. Hmm. And and he also talks about boundaries and renegotiating how one and what the you know what the rules are about how the negotiating the negotiating parties are willing to come back together, but part of the ability to come back together is a, is a longing. And 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 that some people never do come back together and that's okay too. That can be a mm-hmm. conscious choice, but a huge part of it is letting go or being willing to not have to align your stories mm. about what happened. And for some, and in my experience, that benefits the person with more power. And so those who feel that right. that alignment is not okay, stay in estrangement. And that also is okay, right? And so it's not making wrong coming back together or coming up, you know, or it's really intentionally thinking about what are, what is the need in this moment and how do I, and can I get others on board with the agreements that we have to be in relationship with one another? You know, there are so many, um, in terms of this, you know, the reinvention of this that, that we've been speaking about, that, that is this great opportunity and calling and necessity right now. Um, uh, there's so many examples in your work and in your writing about what that can look like. And um, I mean, there's so, you know, that, that, we, that we really do get to, um, to make this be what it needs to be and be creative and, as you say, have fun. Um, and, you know, probably if I read the book... In any given month, I would have different favorite examples, um, but I'm just going to give two two favorite examples from wow. from the Art of Gathering. What a treat! <laughs> um, <laughs> and and one was um, one was the example of a group. So you know, again, you're talking about assessing the specific needs of the group when it meets and articulating why you're gathering and assuming that the gatherings don't have to look a certain way. And this was the, it was, I think it was the future of grass-fed beef group. <laughs> right? And so basically... What can I say, Krista? I have I range. Okay, you have range. And, and so, because, but what I liked about this is, so basically this is a group that is really 
the creation of a new ecosystem for the world we live in now, and it's not the world we lived in or at least didn't understand mm. that we lived in 20 years ago. Mm. Um, and so what I, you know, so I think that this, this particular standing before this particular challenge of creating a new ecosystem is, is almost there for all of us no matter what we do. And, and, and whether it's our workplaces or our fields of work or our communities or our neighborhoods or our kids' schools, right? And so one of the things you came up with is these rotating small groups – Lots of rotating into small groups, which people found it, it just sounded exhausting. And I could see it felt exhausting when I first read about it in the book. <laughs> but then you said something so beautiful. You said so. So, so that in the course of the gathering, people sat at a small table with almost everybody who was there. Um, which, of course, also is not what we do naturally. We naturally have our mm-hmm. people we sit with every mm-hmm. time. And you said, after every speaker and every coffee break, I reminded them that it's hard to build a movement if you don't know who's in it. I just love that. That's true. It's true. And and I think part of – I was the facilitator in that group. And, par, and, and sometimes we're facilitators with capital Fs, and that's our profession. But most of us, at some point or the other, we're small F facilitators. And part of the role of the small F facilitator is to push past with, with joy and jokes, hmm. push, push past the resistance of like, oh, again, I have to get up for my chair again. Or, <laughs> right, oh, yeah. I have to give a toast. Who am I? Or like, oh, this is like there's so much structure here. And yes, you can have too much structure. Absolutely. But I find when you help people understand that by moving around during the coffee breaks in that context, in for those who are able to in the ways that their bodies move, there is a purpose of it. It's not just, oh, this is fun. Let's do this trick. It's like you have told yeah, me that you're you want to build a movement. You're not just right? mixing things up. Right? Yes. You, are, you have told me that mm-hmm. part of the deepest problem is that the ways that farms are built and scale in this country is that you don't know one another and only pockets know one another. We are all – this is pre-pandemic. We are all in the room for about eight hours. Mm-hmm. Why – you know, how – success is that in three years or five years or seven years when there's some crisis or there's some moment of decision and, and everything is super complicated, you can text each other. Yeah. Right. You yeah. can you can you can make a joke with one another. You can pick up the phone and call. That's how you know, that's part of an element of how movements are built. And I'll just I, I love that you picked up on this example. Another example, you know, when when we are recreating fields and movements and there's in almost any organization or system, there is conflict because there is difference. Yeah. yeah. And so starting with the way we started, that it was a related conference to that, the way we started the opening question. I often have people, particularly in larger groups, fill out workbooks in advance with like a number of questions Mm -hmm. in them. And then I read aloud their answers. I curate them and I read them aloud so they can hear the voices in the room without it taking seven hours. And one of the questions I asked was something like, what is your earliest memory of food? And then what is your and, and, and then the second half is and how might that have informed why you do the work you do today? Yeah. And in those, and I began by, you know, my, I remember the, the wrinkles of my grandmother's hands as she, as she pulled up a carrot from the earth. I, and they started to hear each other's stories. And in part, they remembered that, A, even if they have very different philosophies of how a movement should be built, they 
were all children at one point who were deeply moved by dirt. <laughs> you know, like literally, yeah. these are people who love dirt. I can, <laughs> and so, and so, all of those elements is like this is a we need to remind each other that we are complex humans, and that when we want to do the work together, how do we quickly flick in certain ways to help a group find enough of a container to do its work? Yeah, and what I've learned is that memory connects our bodies and our minds, right? Memory puts us in our bodies where we're not just, um, and out of that, coming into the room with my opinion, right? Of, or, or, or my viewpoint or, or even my opinion of you. It, and it's just, it's immediately transformative. It's, it's magic. Mm-hmm. It's alchemical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, Okay, and you mentioned the word toast in there. So that was my other favorite example, your 15 toasts, um, which is just so fascinating um, and also gets at the power of, um, of asking a question that people rise to, right? Mm-hmm. The question that calls forth the, you know, the fullness of a human being, even in a single story. Mm-hmm. So would you tell would you talk about that that thing you've done that 15 toasts and you've done it with groups and you also did it in your own extended family. Mhm. Absolutely. Um I I'm hear pause I for hear a your less extended family. It's okay. <laughs> exactly. One 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 second. I'm yeah. just going to <laughs> So um so so years ago I was in a situation where a friend of mine and I were um, were going to attend kind of very formal meetings um, the next day, and we wanted to see if we could connect the group in a way that um, that was off script, that allowed people to kind of let their hair down, that allowed, that that was also was tapping into the the interestingness and brilliance and complexity that we knew was in the room, that I believe is in every room. Mm. And, and there was 15 of us, so it was kind of, and we had, people said yes to come to this dinner, and then it was kind of like, well, it's 15 people. Do we ask one question and then try to, like, harness it and facilitate it? What if people take over? Yeah. Do we just kind of let people talk, you know, to their, their dinner partner? And we created this kind of experiment, and we called it 15 Toasts. And my husband was involved in the conversation as well. I was like, how do we do this? And, he, and here's what we came up with and we did and have now been, and has now been done in communities all over the world where you're trying to figure out how to get a group of people to meaningfully connect. And um, so first is we chose a theme. And in that context, because of the work we were doing, the theme we chose was a good life. Hmm. Not the good life. <laughs> a good life. Yeah. And at the beginning of the night, we dinged our glasses and we primed them a little bit. We said there's going to be a bit of a structure and it'll be an evening of stories. Um, I ding my glass, stand up, and I said, um, you know, we are so happy to have you here. We wanted to, you all, we wanted to have a conversation that connects us where we get to know each other a little bit more. That's not just our bios or talking about our work. And a question that we've been contending with and think you may have something to say about is, is, is offering you the theme of a good life. And this is how it's going to work. At some point in the evening, we invite you to ding your glass, stand up old school style, and to give a toast to, to 
what you have experienced or something you've learned about a good life, but we don't want your opinion about what you think a good life is. We would love to invite you to do your toast in the form of a story, a relatively short story, but a story <laughs> of some experience in your life that hope that no one around this room has heard of, a room that no one maybe even knew you were in, and what it taught you, what it revealed to you about a good life. And the only other rule is that the last person has to sing their toast. <laughs> That's when, in at least most cultures, people break into hives. <laughs> and so you, and so you answer, you tell the story, and then you toast to the you, and then to you that toast thing to that. Well, that, you toast to either the thing, and this is part of the listening practice of everyone else is to mm-hmm. listen to what is this person saying, and this is a deep practice. Mm. If I tell a story about as I did that evening, my mother throwing me a period party, and how she changed the assumption to me that this is something to be embarrassed about to to something to celebrate and to mark, everybody around. The room is listening very intently. And then I raise my toast, my glass, and I toast a value. And that's based on that story. And maybe sometimes people fumble through and say, I'm not really sure. I'm kind of rambling. I'm not really sure what's in here. And as someone else, part of the beauty of it is as as someone else is listening, he's like, what I hear in that is dignity. Or what I hear in that is, you know, period party. Literally, and you have 12 hands in the air, you know, (laughs) to period parties, right? And... And part of what this form allows is it gives a structure, and you can choose any theme that's relevant to this to the group. We've done people around the world have done fifteen toasts to death, mm. to adventure, to vision, to mm. borders, to all to to, contra- to controversy, to conflict, to faith. Mm. You choose whatever is a group a word that you think will have complexity in it, and that people will be able to share some story from their life in it. And the other thing just around toasting is so we, you know, we've we've lost an a, a, a practice of kind of collective mechanisms of toasting. And toasting is another form of witnessing, right? And it yeah. doesn't we don't have to all be eloquent and say the most beautiful things, but part of a practice and whether this is for a baby shower or a wedding or any is is to allow people to begin to speak aloud to honor either a value or a person by actually having a, a practice and I, yeah. I I I may just actually end with a story it's I was it, it was you know I think we often in part because of modern life in part because we don't all have the same ways of doing something we in trying to not impose on one another we kind of do nothing in our you know in our gatherings and I was no, we're, recently... We're such a ritual poor culture as we're well. We're such a ritual right. poor culture. And, yeah. and so, you know, and so in this context, there, what, what we ended up doing for, the, for this baby shower was, um, and, and, you know, you can all use this, you know, you, you steal it. You, and <laughs> and she, we basically said, um, this is the question that I, that I asked is, what is a value? So it was a group of people who didn't all know each other, but were all connected to this person. In this case, it, it was a mother who was going to have her first child. And, um, and, and, we, and this was the question. Um, h- how do you know this person? <laughs> it's a little bit of context. But more than that, what is a quality in her hmm. that you know to be true, that will help her, that you know will help her be a good mother? 
And what's a story from your relationship, your experience of this person that demonstrated that value? Mm-hmm. And we went around and people, and, and, it, and frankly, it gave, something, gave people something to do, right? Like part of yeah. the function of a baby shower is to bless the person. And there's many ways to kind of bless and to see and to honor. You can do it through activities. You can do it in many ways. But we chose to do it through conversation. Well, it's and such so, a good example, too, because actually the activity has in, in the physical realm, it was just easy for it to be about unwrapping the presents, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and there's exactly. so much. I mean, I went to a virtual baby shower this year where they asked everyone who came to write a blessing for the parents. Mm. Right? And we wouldn't have done that before, I don't mm-hmm. think. I've never mm-hmm. been invited to something in all my 60 years of going to baby showers. Anyway, And absolutely, it's such a good example, in Mm -hmm. part because parenting is being rethought, right? Who gets to parent and how do we parent and what does equal partnership look like and what does it mean to be a a non-binary parent or what does it mean to be a parent of somebody where the the model that you have of your parents is not at all what you want to do for your children. And so these are actually the moments, again, gathering is a political act. When we begin to, in those toasts, when some of the toasts are about, you know, I know that she'll be a good mother because she's always up for an adventure, right? Or Mm -hmm. I know that she's a good mother because she's deeply committed to the world. Or I know she's going to be a good mother because she makes sacrifices. Those are all value judgments about us and our assumptions and our beliefs of what makes a quote unquote good mother. And allowing people to share, but also challenge. Like when we begin to think about how do we want to parent differently? How do we want to work differently? It's in these moments that either your norms get reified or reinvented. And we miss those opportunities when we only focus on an activity without actually trying to, to grapple with the needs and the moment and the people in front of us to figure out how we want to now live. Hmm. Let me just ask you this um, in closing, and I and I really I want you to answer this question kind of this week today. Um, what is making you despair, and where are you finding hope? Hmm. What is making me despair is the deep fracturing of our country and the venom that I see um, uh, between and across people. What is giving me hope is the conversations that have been suppressed for centuries are being, and the questions are being revealed And in many pockets where people who don't necessarily have to hold those questions are holding them and not letting them go. And I think what your work is drawing forth and and being creative with is that we have we all have the capacity um, to to pick up those conversations and the questions that are being raised um, in the fabric of our lives which is gathering with other people. 
Absolutely. And and by first asking and looking and seeing what is the need that I see and is that the need that others see? And it may not be. Yeah. And if it is not, how do I listen? And then how might we invent new ways and agreements and forms to come together because we choose to belong to each other? Yeah. Oh, Priya, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Krista. It's such a it's such a joy and a and a privilege to be in conversation with you about um, about these questions. So thank you. Well, it's been a long time coming, and the world has <clears throat> shifted on its axis a few times since we first started talking <laughs> about doing this. And uh, yeah, no, this is fantastic, and there's so much in here that I think again, you know, to the spirit of our conversation, people don't just need to hear, but are longing to hear. Mm, thank um, you. So thank you. Blessings. <laughs> 